Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, John Vodder, an independent writer and a former editor at ISAS. With me today is Professor Nalin Mehta, Dean at the School of Modern Media, UPES, Dehradun, India. He was previously executive editor for the Times of India Online and is author of a new book released just this year, the subject of today's conversation, The New BJP, Modi and the Making of the World's Largest Political Party. In this episode of South Asia Chat, we look at the new Bharatiya Janata Party through the prism of Hindu nationalism, or Hindutva, an ideology that, as Nalin explains in his book, elicits charged responses across the political spectrum. For some, the BJP's victories in the 2014 and 2019 general elections and the start of the construction of a Ram temple in the North Indian town of Ayodhya, where the Babri Masjid was raised 30 years ago, seriously threatens the Indian Republic. Indeed, the rise of Hindu majoritarianism has sometimes been likened to post-World War I Germany and some fear for India's minority communities. For proponents of Hindu nationalism, on the other hand, it offers, to quote from Nalin's book, a vital cultural corrective to the cultural foundation of the nation. They argue that rather than endangering Indian society, it instead strengthens it by dispensing with false vote bank politics and by uniting the country around a unified, tolerant Hindu culture. Given the chasm in this debate, it becomes critical to understand how exactly the BJP is recasting modernity in the 21st century. To guide us through this sensitive topic with the nuance it deserves, I welcome Nalin to South Asia Chat. Thanks very much, John. A pleasure to be here. I, of course, um, have an appointment with ISAS as well. Um, so um, fantastic to be uh, on the ISAS podcast and to, to talk about the new BJP. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you, and I have to congratulate you on your book. Um, I mean, it was it was really comprehensive in the sheer number and you know the scope of topics which you addressed. Um, and yet, I also found that there was quite a bit of intellectual intricacy um, in how you decided to actually work through uh, some of these topics. Um, I can only imagine it must have taken years to write, informed by um, many, many more years of journalism. Um, and I think others who have read the book would also agree that um, you don't seem to have left very many stones unturned. Uh, so just to give the listeners uh, kind of a broad overview um, of all that your book goes into, um, it weighs in, uh, in on important issues being hotly discussed on the subject of BJP today. Uh, for example, the dynamics of the party organization, um, how it's created a loyalty loyal welfare uh, beneficiary uh, system through a direct and efficient distribution of goods and services. Uh, where the party stands on issues like the economy, development, and capitalism, um, the harnessing of digital technologies to promote its agendas, uh, courting new voters and coalitions, um, and its death positioning as a national party grounded in Hindu principles, um, yet which also seems to be um, inclusive of other um, Indian communities. So as you yourself put it, borrowing from the metaphor of Uttar Pradesh Chief Minister Yogi Adityanath, if Hindutva is the gati, um, or energy, then welfare, and as you elaborate in your book, a very strong ground game, um, is the wheel, which has placed the BJP system at the center of Indian politics. So we have limited time in this podcast. I'd like to focus on the first part of this metaphor, uh, the energy which Hindutva is able to generate for the BJP and how it factors into wider debates on Indian secularism and nationalism. Uh, personally, while reading the book, I found the stories which you opened with in your introduction to be really fascinating. Uh, for instance, um, the story about a Jai Ram sticker, which was pasted to your father's uh, scooter by your grandfather, um, as well as stories about your uh, mother-in-law's Kurseva around the time of the demolition of the Babri Masjid. Um, these, these stories, I felt, tapped into a more complex dialogue going on between the external world of politics, as you say, and the inside family worlds. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, these stories and how they might have affected the way in which you decided to approach this book? Um, in um, other words, your argument that now it was you know, time to assess dispassionately the BJP's growth. Um, thanks very much, John. Um, of, of, um, Thanks very much, John, for that introduction. Um, 
you know, it was a um, a serious debate in my head um, on whether to bring in the personal at all uh, into a serious study uh, of a political system or the Indian polity or the BJP. But in the end, the reason why I brought in the personal, um, it uh, you know, my literary agent, for example, fought with me for two weeks saying, you have to write in the personal. And as an academic, I deeply resisted it. Um, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. And the reason for that, fundamentally why I agreed in the end was that um, um, politics affects both our external and our internal worlds, whether you are politically um, involved or engaged or not. For many people, their experience of what's happening already is deeply influenced by the personal. Um, and I think what's happened with the rise of the BJP for this particular book and for this particular topic um, um, whether you agree with the ideology of Hindu nationalism, whether you agree with the ide- ideology of the BJP or not, or, or whether you are deeply opposed to it um, or not, um, it affects our inner and external worlds deeply. So, for example, among my colleagues, my friends, uh, uh, my uh, family members, um, many of whom are not academics at all and who have no um, interest or or uh, or any idea of academics uh, we have vociferous debates about what the rise of the bjp means people leave whatsapp groups people join whatsapp groups uh, they, they people spread fake news on whatsapp groups uh, uh, and people try and take secular positions or uh, or non secular positions it deeply affects everybody and i think that is the nature of the deep shift happening in india now so in, in in a sense i was trying to make sense of this and also we are all products of our eco chambers whether we like it or not in one way or the other in the sense that whether you are on one side of the fence or on the other and this is something you see in the us as well in a deeply divided polity uh, between democrats or republicans um very often our lenses um are are um, or our worldviews are products of what of the echo chambers we are of. So for this book, I wanted to place myself outside my echo chamber to keep my own personal positioning positioning completely outside of this to the extent possible. Of course, they're always unconscious biases. And then understand why... Basically, the question I was looking to answer was the ideology of Hindu nationalism was a fully developed ideology at the time of independence in 1947. Um, and the form that the Jansung took from 1950 onwards. This is not like Trump coming and completely uh, reshaping what it means to be a, to be a Republican, um, or Boris Johnson coming in and reshaping what it means to be conservative in the UK. Um, what Modi stands for today is exactly what, in ideological terms, what the Jansung of the 50s stood for, um, in ideological and cultural terms. Except that that idea was politically not saleable at all then, and today it is the primary. Uh, poll of India's politics in terms of electoral results. So what I was trying to answer, what changed? How did this become an electorally sellable idea? Now, um, my own personal story, um, I think, represented in some ways some of the debates I was seeing in the world around me to make sense of this. So the first political fight that I saw, uh, that I remember in my memory was about the genesis of the BJP. Uh, My parents or my grandparents came in as refugees from what is now Pakistan, from both sides of, of the family. Uh, they settled in Delhi. The Jansang was very much driven by refugees because of the deep Hindu-Muslim divides that partition um, in, engendered in 1947. And uh, when I was growing up, the, the movement that propelled the BJP to prominence in national politics started around the time when I was in school, which was the the, the Rath Yatra of LK Advani, which was from Somnath on the western coast, uh, the temple that had been destroyed by Mahmud Ghazni hundreds of years ago, to Ayodhya in uh, the Ram Temple, which whose consecration Narendra Modi sat over as a prime minister last year after the Supreme Court judgment, a, a unanimous Supreme Court judgment, uh, giving that land to the Ram Temple with a mosque being built separately. This, of course, the, was the mosque that was demolished in, uh, in the early 90s after the Ram Temple movement. The first political fight I remember in my family was between my grandfather and my father, because at the height of that movement, my grandfather brought in a sticker saying Jai Shri Ram, which basically means Hail Lord Ram, and put it on my dad's scooter. And my father, who was a serving army officer, took deep offense to it. Okay, and he said, look, my father, my grandfather saw it as a religious statement. My father saw it as a political statement. Because this, my father was born in 
post independence india was a secular is a nehruvian secularist my grandfather who came in as a refugee from partition who had a deep distrust of muslims he saw it in religious terms my father saw it deeply uh, uh, as a political statement because it was a political statement of the movement of a political party at that point of time and as uh, and remember at that um, when he was recruited in the indian army being a member of the rss disqualified you from from joining the indian army if you were at, as a security clearance in in the um, uh, in the late 60s so um, at this so so no, so my both of them were speaking a language which neither of them could understand um and my grandmother eventually said keep politics outside the house we've lost too many people to this at the time of partition uh, and then the next exposure to this to these debates growing up was a few months later as a 10 year old i went to my mother's office which is a cent- uh, she was a central government employee to her office and there was a there was a shrine for hindu gods which her co-workers had put up within the office pre- office premises and next to it somebody had pasted a sticker saying mandir wahi banayenge what that basically meant was for those who don't know hindi we will make the temple at that spot only which basically was that this was the movement to build the ram temple on the disputed site of the babri masjid that the temple must be built on that spot itself because the people who led the movement believed that that was the birthplace of lord ram and they believed that was the what most hindus believed now again my father saw that and it raised deep concern and he was wearing an army uniform and he said look um whether you agree with this or not the place to have this debate is not inside the government office there is a political movement happening outside this should be debated outside as government servants we cannot debate this inside the premises of the thing and it raises deep question of the role of the state and religious belief um, and the difference between private belief and your public expression of it especially when you're a government servant and i think these are precisely the debates that that you are facing that we are dealing with today when you are having deep debates about the idea of india um, about what it means what nehru meant as the idea of india and what the bjp means by when it says the new india um, and then of course um, to cut a long story short um, you know i have covered the bjp for over 20 plus years as a journalist and when i was covering gujarat in the early 2000 2002 i discovered that i just got married and i discovered that my mother in law um, had been a car saver she had been Uh, to the uh, to the disputed site in Ayodhya before the demolition of the mosque and after the demolition of the mosque as well, and I had deep debates with her about um, what does this mean for the future of India, and she said and she had a very simple answer. Her answer was, um, "This is my God, and that's why I want the temple." and all the things that i was used to dealing with you know in my professional circles as a journalist as an academic the idea of india the notions of secularism deep debates about the nature of the state versus religiosity and so on and so forth none of them made any sense to her and i just couldn't understand we just couldn't have a dialogue and at one point i almost dismissed her as as a just a very extreme right wing hindutva person um and then i discovered a deeper complexity which is that in that same family which i had been married into um my gra- my father in law um used to uh, read the namaz every day they were both devout muslim uh, devout hindus my both my in laws they are um they 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 do uh, they uh, they support the ram temple for example they've contributed to the building of the ram temple even now uh, for the public drive that was held after the supreme court allowed the temple to be built um but for the last 200 years that same family has also um built a mosque which is still called the mansing mosque mansing masjid for named after the family um and they still read the quran every morning um wearing the the prayer cap and it's part of a shared tradition uh, what they call as they receive ancestry because there's a story of an old of a muslim peer who came to their family seven generations ago and said don't convert to islam but respect it and read the quran every day and and do this and there's a deep history to this and you know this is something that anthropologists sociologists people who study these cultures in india have long been familiar with this um deep complexity uh, which is beyond the binaries that you see in your political debates and on television and on newspapers every day uh, and i think that is the palimpsest we are talking about and i think that context was very important to frame this debate for me yeah it is very complex and i think also um it it also makes the appeal of uh, hindutva devotees um at least in my opinion as an outsider 
uh, more difficult to understand. Um, you, you mentioned earlier um, that unlike someone like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, um, Hindu nationalism already had a sort of ideological foundation, uh, you know, going back to the Jansung um, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and yet, uh, on the other hand, um, part of the project of your book was to track how is it that now in the 2020s, you know, Hindu nationalism has become more politically potent than it was before, and it's maybe garnering sympathies. Uh, there are a couple of um, very suggestive uh, quotes to me from, from your book, which I was pondering over. Um, one is from Yogi Adityanath, um, who is uh, kind of talking about the concept of secularism, but through a Hindu na nationalist lens, uh, where he says in the Indian context, um, India should be uh, pant nirpeksh, you know, meaning community neutral, rather than dharam nirpeksh, uh, or religiously neutral. Um, and then Mohan Bhagwat, who was the chief of the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, um, also makes the paradoxical claim that if Hindus become more Qatar uh, or fundamentalist, it actually means that they will become more liberal. Uh, so, I mean, what, what does this mean exactly? Um, and why is it that it is, uh, you know, seemingly um, more attractive uh, to a wider um, swath of voters than, say, back in the 1940s? Okay. Uh, I think that's a very important question. There are many definitions of secularism. Um, and just as there are many strands of Hindutva, for example, um, for example, there is a different French definition of secularism and there's a different American definition of secularism. And the way secularism has been practiced in India is a different model as well. Uh, at the heart of this is about what kind of secularism do you want? And this has been at the center or the central axis or a flashpoint in debates around Hindutva from the very beginning, from uh, not just the 1930s or 40s, but even before going back uh, to the 19th century, uh, if you take a longer view of, uh, of, of, of this. Um, let me preface what I'm saying by something that Narendra Modi said um, in his victory speech in 2019, delivered at the BJP office after his second electoral triumph uh, in 2019, which was a bigger triumph than uh, the one he had in 2014, both on vote share and on seat share. Um, he specifically referred to this debate around secularism, and he specifically said that for, for a very long time, uh, he said there has been um, a, a, what he called a print, I'm quoting exactly, a printout, uh, a tag that people wore that was fashionable. And this tag was akin to if you wear this tag you can do anything and you jump and you and it is it is akin to you can do any wrong but this is akin to bathing in the ganga and, and it washes away all your other sins and he said this tag was fake but the name of this tag was secularism he specifically said this in his victory speech and he said since there since the bjp's victory in 2014 um, a lot of uh, the people who espouse that kind of secularism that he referred to um, uh, and he said, they, unki jamaat kam ho hai. by jamaat, it's a, it's a Urdu term for a congregation of people, right? And I think the language here is very important. Um, now, I think there's no question that the BJP espouses a very different um, qualitative idea of secularism from what it has historically been, uh, been accepted uh, as part of the idea of India from Nehru onwards and then to Indira Gandhi and then and then uh, thereafter, this was also at the, uh, I mean, if you go back to the 1980s, Vajpayee spoke about uh, when the BJP was formed in 1980, when the Jansang was rechristened or rebirthed as the BJP in 1980, Vajpayee in his opening speech of, of the plenary session of the BJP specifically talked about what he called positive secularism. And he said this secularism is different from the secularism as, as has been practiced by the Congress. And what they meant by that essentially was that the Congress practiced a kind of secularism that in their view was essentially religious appeasement. Um, and uh, in their view, um, Hindus weren't getting their rightful place despite being a majority uh, in the country. And he specifically talked about Shivaji, who's a great icon of India, 17th century Maratha warrior, created the first Maratha empire. Um, and he specifically talked about the secularism of Shivaji, which was 
uh, and he mentioned that Shivaji, for example, when he went on his campaigns, he would go to a Muslim peer in Ratnagiri. And when he was in captivity in Agra, he had a Muslim attendant to, he was talking about equality as opposed to favoring one over the other. I think that was the idea they were putting. L.K. Advani famously called this pseudo-secularism, uh, what the Congress idea was. Now, whether it's whether you agree with one version or not, I'm just talking about the trajectory of that idea. Now, um, coming back to what you pointed out about Yogi, Yogi specifically said in his speech, uh, in an interview, that he said, again, he took on the point that uh, this interview he gave was in 2017, which was about a couple of years before Modi's victory speech of 2019, where he said that the way secularism has been practiced in his view um, has been false. And he said he made a distinction between the definition of secularism and what it means in the constitution. Uh, he said it should, it actually means panth nirpeksh, which is community neutral, as opposed to what many people think that it means dhan nirpeksh, which is religion neutral. And his argument was that um, if um, panth nirpekshta or neutrality towards communities is the ideal or is the notion of secularism, then he argued that Hinduism itself as a religion is the most secular, is the most pluralist, because it's not a religion of the book. And therefore, Hinduness, for want of a better word, is the basis of India's secularism. Uh, and he explained that further. He said he talked about terms like Sarv, Sarve Bhantu, Bhavantu Sukhina. He talked about terms like Vasudev Kutumkum, the world is my family, old uh, Sanskrit verses. Um, and he said that, look, what this means is that um, you are not opposed to any particular community, but at the same time, you are not being equidistant to all. I mean, you are respecting all. So he explained, and, and the example he gave was that he was in one of the things when he gave this speech around that time was. There was a whole symbolism around iftar parties in uh, held by political parties. When Yogi Aitanath became the chief minister of UP, he decided not to host an iftar party, which was a big shift from earlier. When he was questioned about it, he said, look, I am a Hindu seer. He is the presiding um, mahant of, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of the temple in Gorakhpur. He said... As, as an individual who has a particular religious belief, I see no reason why I should go to an iftar party because that is different from my religious belief. But as the chief minister of this state, it is my responsibility to make sure that that iftar party happens and it is protected and happens under adequate security. And it is in a safe environment. I mean, he was. this was the way he explained this difference. Or what does it mean, the difference between community neutral and religion neutral? I think that's the point he was making. Now... Coming back, now, this idea has an older um, intellectual history, if you like. Um, Rajnath Singh, uh, now the Defence Minister of India, then the Home Minister of India in 2015, he gave a speech in Parliament. Um, and he made the same point between um, Pant Nirpeksh and Dham Nirpeksh, so community neutrality versus religious neutrality. And he said that, look, ultimately, the Constitution of India adopted the two two words only in the 1970s. Those words were secular uh, and socialist. These did not exist in the constitution of India at the birth of the Indian Republic. They were inserted during Indira Gandhi's regime in the 70s during the emergency period. Now, his argument was, through the 42nd Amendment to the Constitution in 1976, his argument was, had Ambedkar, the great framer of the constitution, felt this was a core belief or the, at the core of the idea of India, then this should have been there in the constitution from the beginning. Right? Now it wasn't there. It was inserted later. So therefore he says that um, we must adopt, now it's there, we must adopt a notion that is community neutral. And he says, if we, and, he, and he explains that further. He gives another example. He says, in the House of Parliament, the symbol of the Indian Republic is the Ashokan lion. We've had a lot of debate about the Ashokan Lion last week also when the new parliament building was being built and Modi inaugurated it. And there was a whole debate around it on the whether those lions were more aggressive than the original lion that Sarnath or not, um, uh, whether they changed the idea of India or not. But be that as it may, in that a symbol of the Indian Republic, which was adopted for a reason by Nehruvian India and by the Constituent Assembly as the symbol of India, which is on all the banknotes of India, he says that symbol also has the Dharm Chakra. That Dhan Chakra is a religious symbol. It says 
the slogan on that is dharm chakra parivartane which is uh, which is the protector of dharm he says if you are going to be agnostic to religion then should we remove that too because that is also a religious symbol even though you have not seen it as a religious symbol so far so that, it's a, this is a this is a deeper debate and there are many strands to it um i'll i'll conclude this by um what does all this amount to really i mean i am not talking about um riots that happen and so on i'm talking about the intellectual trajectory about different meaning of secularism both on the left and on the right and um kr malkani in the 90s uh, or in the late 80s when uh, the ram temple movement first ignited these debates on a national scale in a way that had never been done before he wrote a piece where he argued that um iqbal who was the in some ways the great intellectual of partition um um he called ram imam e hind right and he says essentially as that ram was the presiding deity of india according to iqbal he quoted iqbal and he says that if, if iqbal who was one of the greatest proponents of one of the greatest poets of the subcontinent but also one of the greatest proponents of partition um could say that then what is the problem in saying it today and this was exactly about at the heart of whether whether uh, a ram temple should be built on that spot or not and his argument was basically have equality with religions do not favor one over the other but accept the cultural primacy of hindus in a country where 80% of people are or plus 80% are hindus now whether that is right or wrong is a different debate but this is the is the playing field of that debate if you like and i guess to uh, complicate it further i mean when we say that uh, you know india is 80% hindus you know within hindu we also have thousands of subcastes and subjatis uh and one of the ways in which the bjp seems to have changed uh since say you know the vajpayee years in the 1990s um is that now it is appealing much more uh to other backward caste communities um and scheduled communities in places like uttar pradesh uh you talk in your book about how um the bjp's chal charitra and chehra has changed um it's you know essentially gate character and face and there were two anecdotes which you share um which i thought were very interesting one has to do with uh modi's announcement of erecting a 80 foot statue um of nishad raj um who uh, is a legendary king of the nishad community um and the role that he plays in ushering ram sita and lakshman um across a river in the ramayana during their exile and then the second is of a, a district general secretary um who is a brahman uh who for the purposes of um enrolling dalits onto um you know bjp registers goes into a valmiki basti or settlement um and has tea uh with the gentleman there um and to me uh it's it's very interesting because this would seem to be counter uh to the way in which um the bjp was uh, traditionally understood you know just a couple decades ago right i think this is a very important point you raised john see a lot of people who um oppose the bjp um think that it's a one trick pony they think that this is essentially only a party of hindutva and on a religious messaging of a particular kind and that's why it's winning actually that's not the case at all um because the core constituency of hindutva in india has not increased that was 17 18% of voters the bjp in 2019 got 37 plus uh, 37% uh, plus votes right it's attracting a much larger constituency of voters in a way that it never did before the question i was looking to answer was why um who are these people who are voting for the bjp why and what is the long term uh, uh, nature of this trend first and foremost the bjp the old bjp and by the old bjp i mean the pre 2014 bjp was a brahmin banya party essentially it was a upper caste party it was a party of urban india right the post 2014 bjp Uh, which was constructed by narendra modi and amit shah below him um amit shah was the president of the bjp under whom the membership drives happened between 2014 and today in 2022 essentially the bjp became um the big shift that happened with the bjp was first it became a majorly rural party in the hindi heartland by that i mean 
the dozen odd hindi speaking states in north india which are at the core of the bjp's electoral advances right uh, in those states up madhya pradesh rajasthan chatisgarh and so on and so forth uh, the bjp has become the default party of the village which is a huge shift from the bjp of pre 2014 and this shift has happened um without the bjp losing its core bases in semi rural areas and in urban areas right so it retained its support which it already had in urban india and in semi urban india which where it grew but in rural india is where it grew deep roots now what do i mean by that just uh, three figures to substantiate what i'm saying if there are 225 parliamentary seats in the hindi heartland out of the 543 total seats in the indian parliament out of these 225 seats in the hindi heartland 127 are rural seats okay in those 127 rural seats the bjp won over 40% vote share in only 16.5% seats in 2009 so a small percentage in 2014 that number went up to 57.4 seats which means 73 out of 127 seats in 2019 it won over 40% vote share in 95 of these seats which is about 74 75% of these seats so that is the nature of the shift it took deep roots in rural india and became the default party at the time and other parties like the congress or other regional parties like the samajwadi party the bahujan samaj party which is of the dalits they all received their vote shares concomitantly declined in the rural parts of the in the heartland that's one the second question is how did this happen it happened through three developments the first is the bjp which was always largely an upper caste party became at many levels uh, um both in the terms of the voters it was attracting and in terms of representation it was giving to these voters in various power structures uh, the biggest shift that happened was it attracted other backward classes who were non yadav obcs were uh, uh, into its fold and secondly to a slightly lesser extent or to a lesser extent scheduled castes and scheduled tribes um and scheduled castes are essentially dalits so non yadav dalits now there are many sub classes for those who don't know india um there are many kinds of upper backward classes listed in the constitution of india uh, there are different lists for the country overall and there are different lists for different states similarly for scheduled castes which are uh, basically the erstwhile the dalits or what were once untouchables and in the caste system and then the scheduled tribes now within these categories the bjp made huge inroads and i will let me illustrate that in uttar pradesh which accounts for the largest number of seats in the indian parliament 80 out of 543 seats which the bjp swept the bjp's advances were basically powered by uh, um, its deep inroads in hindi heartland and more specifically up and bihar um look at uh, we we created something called uh, the uh, the mehta singh index which basically tracked the caste of different representation levels politically in up between 1990 and 2019 and we basically studied the caste of 4000 politicians from the four key parties from bjp sp bsp um, and the congress and we saw that a huge shift occurred after 2014 so basically in 2019 to give you a sense of this among the bjp's parliamentary candidates in up 57.5% were either obc or scheduled caste so from so they were not upper caste they were from these sections when you looked at the provincial assembly the state assembly of india is a federal structure you look at the provincial assembly of up 52.8% of its candidates and in these elections it swept so they were all winning candidates these were not just people to tick a box or to make it good look on a powerpoint 52.8% were either obc or scheduled caste then we looked at the bjp's own power structure as in the its own party hierarchy and in its own party hierarchy in up among its office bearers at the state level about 50% were either obc or scheduled caste then we looked at okay so this is uh, you've given these seats to these candidates Uh, both at the national election and local election you given these people a share of your organizational structure people who were never among your support base earlier then we looked at when you come to power what happens after you come to power or do you just treat them as as dis, in as dispensable voters if you like 
and then we looked at the minister share of council of ministers of yogi adityanath in lucknow and we found that 48.1% of his ministers were either obc or sc then we looked at the bjp district presidents there are 98 district presidents of the bjp in up um, and there were 35.6% were from this category now the this is hugely significant for a party which was largely upper caste dominated earlier this is a revolutionary shift i am not saying that there's been a social shift at the level of society no do atrocities against caste happen today of course they do i'll be stupid anybody will stupid to make a claim that doesn't happen um what i'm saying is that see politics is not about perfection politics is people are not voting for the ideal perfect candidate they are voting for the candidate who they think at that point is less worse off than others who is the best available option and in that the rate of change of the bjp why i'm saying is this is historic shift because both in terms of the pre 2014 bjp vis-a-vis the post 2014 bjp this caste structure or this caste um share of spoils if you like for people who are who are not upper caste but this is also a huge shift compared to other parties in the competition so you look at parties like samajwadi party which are the which is the party of the obcs yadavs in particular you look at the bsp which is the party of dalits and and jatav dalits in particular you look at the congress which is which says it which which has been the natural party of governance for the last 70 years and in all these three parties when you compare at these levels of analysis with the bjp the bjp today is the data shows us the most socially representative party in up barring muslims and that's an important point to make but in terms of the caste structure it is giving more representation to these categories than any other party including the parties that espouse the caste causes of these of certain social groups is giving uh, yogi adityanath's council of ministers today and in his last government had more obcs than akhilesh yadav's samajwadi party government which is the party of obcs in particular which preceded him and one final point the other thing that shifted was the women vote the bjp was tradition, was traditionally seen as a patriarchal party it never got women voters historically in india um the congress at a national level the congress always got many more women voters than the bjp and um the election commission started reporting gender based data from mid 60s onwards so there were two major shifts that happened in indian politics first is that men always voted more than women so typically from the 60s onwards the vote voting percentage of men vis-a-vis women would show us like a 10% gap that gap kept growing now 2019 was the first election in which the voter turnout for women voter turnout percentage was more than men okay that's one second in that election in all the key states politically important states of india numerically significant states the surveys show us that bjp got more women voters substantially more than the congress did at the national level so at a time when women are voting more than ever in your history and voting more than men and they never voted to this extent their their vote largely has shifted to the bjp in key states now that is very counterintuitive because um if you see the protests against the bjp say on the caa or the nrc the national register of citizenship or on the citizenship amendment act uh, which preceded the coronavirus a lot of that protest was led by women activists in urban urban cities and now you are saying the data is showing us that women are largely voting for the bjp especially in the states that you see as the most patriarchal in the hindi heartland right so um why did th- that shift and this is basically also a rural shift most of these women were voting with the bjp many of them are urban but a significant percentage are rural they are beneficiaries of direct benefit programs now that is another debate about why with one of the thing the book investigates and i i mean the fact that this shift happened is is unquestionable uh, the data is absolutely crystal clear on this the question was did it happen on its own was it an accident of history or did the bjp have specific schemes which it strategically went after women voters which made the shift happen over a period of time and the answer to that is yes 
there are five or six reasons for that but you know we can talk about, i think we are running out of time but uh, but there's a whole chapter on women in the book which specifically examines this question and i'll i just put one anecdote there uh, at we talked about the re- representation for obcs and scheduled castes which is a major shift reason why the the caste structure of india's voters changed to the bjp the same thing happened with women you know i tracked um women representation in the party structures of all the national parties congress including progressive parties like the cpim left parties and other regional parties and i tracked the council of ministers of narendra modi as well as the previous council of ministers manmohan singh two terms upa 1 and upa 2 and you find that the representation of women in modi's council of ministers is significantly higher than it was in manmohan singh's two council of ministers between 2004 and 2000 um 14 and which was also higher than the previous bjp government of vajpayee modi has much higher representation and uh, at the level of the parties the uh, the uh, b- women appointees at the central party leadership level of bjp is the highest if you look at parliament the number of mps are highest the number of candidates are highest so that gives you a sense of uh, and this is not this is only a partial answer it gives you a sense of the nature of shift that happened yeah i think uh I mean the the shift which the BJP has made in terms of um its voter constituencies uh is profound and um you know we, we could spend a long time uh talking about um you know each of these different demographics uh you know for their own podcasts uh, as you said we're um reaching the end of the episode um so I would kind of like to uh roll together a couple of thoughts I had as you know a final question to you um we began this conversation uh talking about um hindutva and secularism you know the idea of uh, community neutrality versus religious neutrality and i think one of the things which the data shows and your book shows us is that the bjp is complicating you know some of the expectations um that previously we would have had about how it would act um one thing which you know i was wonder re- wondering reading through is is the bjp in some ways you know walking the talk um in terms of its ability to be uh community inclusive i mean we have um inclusivity for um lower caste we have inclusivity for women uh we have inclusivity or seeming compromises pragmatic compromises um in the south and in the northeast um through which it imagines in a type of you know mythological uh, sanskrit cosmopolis uh or is it that you know this is just power politics pure and simple the bjp will strike these alliances for its benefit like you said there's a chessboard it's got to make a move at a specific place and time um and will it actually be the case that the moves that the bjp is making now will weaken the ideology of hindutva or in some ways um actually create a contradiction or internal power tussle similar to what we saw in the congress Okay so um I think on the first question uh, the book actually lists five challenges for the BJP going forward um I think the the crucial point is look uh, what I want to say is that there was once a congress system in India to quote Rajni Kothari's elegant term of um, which dominated the indian or defined the indian polity for several decades I think the BJP has now replaced the congress as the dominant pole of india's polity and this shift a lot of people think that this is that the prime minister narendra modi is definitely uh, the um, the progenitor of this shift uh, the new bjp the term which which i've used as a title of the book which was created after 2014 uh, is very different from the old bjp uh, very much driven by modi very much defined by his persona and the changes that he made and so on both in policy and in politics but uh, the assumption that in a post modi era that this will just disappear that this was a black swan event i think is a wrong assumption because i think the bjp today the roots it has struck are much deeper than um, than a black swan event um so there is a profound shift there is now a bjp system of the new bjp in this country now there are several challenges to that uh, one of the challenges of course is what happens to the economy uh, what happens to jobs that's a big challenge uh, the china border dispute is a second challenge what happens um for a party that is built um very much on the notion of muscular nationalism uh, and so on and so forth um when you have a border challenge from china uh, the uh, if it goes into an escalation point 
what impact that has. Um, the uh, the third challenge, I think, is w- what you alluded to, which is about the Hindu-Muslim question, about social strife. If that goes uh, beyond a certain level, then th- then it's a, what impact does that have on several things beyond beyond the beyond normative reasons. Uh, it will have a huge economic impact and so on and so forth. Um, in, we saw what happened with the Nupur Sharma case recently when several um, Islamic countries protested and the BJP suspended its uh, spokesperson uh, um, for insulting the prophet. Um, now, uh, that's 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 definitely a major challenge. Uh, another big challenge is if the BJP today is the big social tent that the Congress once was in the 50s, barring Muslims, um, then you have that. I mean, then you have so many new entrants into your tent. Then when everybody's in your tent, barring one or two communities, then uh, there, that brings its own strife about the share of, of the spoils of power. So how the BJP negotiates, uh, then it's also a question of what after Modi, who after Modi, right? Uh, 2024 will be fought under the leadership of Narendra Modi. But after, in the uh, five, six, ten years from there, uh, what then in a post-Modi era? And I think that will define the future of not only of the BJP, but also of, of the Indian Republic, uh, the trajectory it takes. But the point I want to make is that, um, and, and these are again, these are being negotiated daily, right? You've had a debate uh, around the Gyanwapi Mosque um, in uh, uh, in uh, uh, Banaras and around the temple in Mathura. But then you also had statements from the RSS chief trying to dampen down religious tensions and so on. I think the real question is, um, look, the BJP, even at the height of its greatest triumph in 2019, roughly got around 37 percent plus of the vote. So if you don't like the BJP, then the easy assumption is that, look, uh, all you have to do to dislodge these guys is get all the opposition together. A united opposition can beat the BJP. Mathematically, yes, of course. Um, Because 60% plus of India did not vote for BJP, even at the height of its greatest triumph, uh, which was the greatest triumph in Indian democracy for the last 30 years uh, in 2019, right? Now, there are structural challenges to that. And I think this idea is very flawed, practically. The idea of this and the reality of this, there are many gaps between that. Because fundamentally, there are four kinds of state systems in India. Uh, There are one category of states, which are where the BJP and the Congress are in direct contest, which is basically the North Indian states uh, and Karnataka. right? In those states, the Congress is today deeply weakened significantly more weakened than it's ever been. And in those states, because the Congress is deeply weakened and the BJP is constantly advancing, the ability of the Congress to be the fulcrum of an anti-BJP alliance has gone down significantly. Uh, In previous alliances, every party, uh, multi-party coalition, typically you need one anchor, right? And that anchor was the Congress um, for the anti-BJP alliances. The Congress today is roughly the same size as what any other regional party would be. So unless that substantially changes, you have a problem. The second category of states is states where um, BJP is in direct contest with regional parties. So these are states like West Bengal, Odisha in the east, um, Telangana in the south, Andhra in the south. And in these states, the BJP is a very different animal compared to the BJP that you see in North India. The BJP here is the anti-establishment party. It is not just the party of Hindutva. So what has happened is in these states, the Congress disappeared. And the BJP replaced the Congress as the, or or some other party, like including the left in West Bengal, as the second primary pole of the polity. So everybody who is unhappy with the ruling establishment, which in this case is a regional party, whether they like Hindutva or not, are gravitating towards BJP. Different people, are different politicians are reacting differently to it. If you're an ambitious politician, the way to rise in that state is to join the BJP. So the BJP, there is a different animal. So you will see a big challenge in Telangana, for example, in the next election. Now, the third category is states where the BJP is irrelevant. Those are states like Tamil Nadu or Kerala, where it is insignificant. But in those states, um, in Tamil Nadu, for example, Tamil Nadu, um, AIDMK is in flux. The BJP is playing things behind the scenes. So, you know, in those states, the BJ- there are little green shoots of BJP support. In Kerala, for example, there are seats like Thiruvananthapuram, where the BJP got 30% of the vote last time. There are seats like Patanipattam. There are seats like Thrissur, where BJP got over 25% of the vote. So, there is a shift happening in those states. Very small, but again, this is like on the periphery of the change. And then the fourth category, 
is the states which which were once multipolar polities but where bjp has now become dominant example up up didn't produce uh, uh, produce uh, majorities for a very long time but bjp has now won huge majorities in up three times in 2014 national election 2019 national election 2017 with a provincial election 2022 a provincial election it's become the party ruling up same thing in the northeast which is very counterintuitive because bjp is a hindi speaking hindu nationalist party northeast is largely christian is it's got in some states over 90% christian populations in assam it's got the highest number of muslims and in assam it's won two consecutive terms right uh, the same thing um, uh, so so what i'm saying is at the ground level the way it is right now the fulcrum the barriers for creating a cohesive anti bjp alliance have increased because of the massive shifts happening in each of these four categories of states in the indian political system and what one thing is clear now i'm not saying it can't happen it can happen um, um all i'm saying is the barriers have increased and one thing is clear that anti modiism or anti bjpism is not enough to weld this coalition together the presidential election which has happened just now gives you a, an a snapshot of this about because the bjp nominated a tribal woman as the presidential candidate several opposition parties which are not part of the alliance with the bjp which are in direct contest with the bjp in the states they don't want the bjp but they have all supported the bjp's candidate and not the opposition's candidate because they didn't want to be seen as the optics of opposing a tribal woman one secondly many of these state leaders are making a tactical alliance right okay we fight with you at the state level but and you know we'll make some accommodation at the national level you know we live to fight together here don't you know so and others are fighting more aggressively like mamta in west bengal is taking a much more aggressive line so there are different variations to this all i'm saying is earlier bjp's growth the big barrier was hindutva it was a blocker hindutva is no longer a blocker to bjp's growth for other alliance partners barring some parts of south india Mm. I think uh you know we we end uh, in some ways where we began uh with a question of the porous uh nature of hindutva and also some of the barriers that it presents. Uh thank you so much Nailin uh for going really in depth uh into all my questions. Um it's uh you know really wonderful having you here on South Asia chat and we look forward to continuing this conversation with you in some other form in the future. Thank you very much John uh, absolute pleasure being on this podcast with you thanks Dear listeners this is John Vader if you are interested in learning more about the evolving politics in India or following significant developments in South Asia please visit the website www.isas.nus.edu.sg for their latest updates We hope you enjoyed this session and we look forward to welcoming you again soon for the next episode of South Asia Chat. Thank you.